two minutes before, no, one minute. Welcome to Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Before I say anything, would you please make sure that your telephone's off? And it's very distracting. Secondly, uh, in the beginning, we all have to remember that we stand and live and enjoy in the land of traditional Blackfoot and the Métis people. With their generosity, we have been given the treaty to live here and work. We haven't been very good to them, but we are trying to recover the good relationship they offer to us. So let us remember the Blackfoot territory and Métis nations. Today's uh, talk is problematic in Alberta because I discovered a lot of Albertans don't like the word liberal. <laughs> Which is a pity because liberal is a good, good concept. In the United States, they don't like liberals because they think we are all communists. If you call yourself liberal. But here, uh, there's another reason why Albertans don't like liberal. Uh, the name of the family which dominates uh, politics could be, I don't know. But anyway, liberal education is a very brave expression of the very old, respectable, important concept. And we are lucky to have Shelley Wismat with us to talk about the new school of liberal education. And she's a dean and a very respected professor of math mathematics. And I don't want to go any further because I'm invading into her time. So let us hear uh, Shelley's talk and what is this new venture of the university is all about. So Shelley, thank you for coming. It's up to you. Hello, everyone. I would like to thank Newt and the other organizers for inviting me to come and talk to you today uh, to tell you a little bit about liberal education at the U of L and elsewhere and what it has to offer our students in this new millennium. As many of you know, the University of Lethbridge was founded in 1967. It was a heady time in Canada, and all we baby boomers thought that education was going to change the world, and a lot of new universities were formed. The U of L started as a liberal education institution, and that philosophy permeated our teaching and learning from the start. And what we envisioned then was a very multifaceted view of liberal education. We wanted to have multidisciplinary courses and viewpoints to develop critical thinking skills, to have students debate larger social and philosophical issues, and generally to produce well-educated citizens who would be trained as social leaders. So that was our founding philosophy. 
But that's 50-some years ago, and life has moved on, and things have changed a little bit. So what I'm going to talk about is some of the history of liberal education, where we are now, ways we're changing, and why I think it's still really relevant. So after Tad's intro, I should say, first of all, that the word li liberal comes actually from the Latin word liber, which means free. So it's not directly political, although by the end of this talk, you'll see that it kind of is. Um, liber meant free. And liberal education traces its roots back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, as so much of our Western tradition does. And it was the education that free people, in other words, citizens, got in order to participate in the running of society. So in Rome, the, the citizens would trot down to the Roman Forum every day and debate the issues and make the rules for the city-state of Rome. That theme of education for citizenship has remained for thousands of years now as an essential part of liberal education. And one of my favorite quotes is by Martha Nussbaum, a really prominent um, American philosopher and thinker, who uses that word liberate. This is an education that liberates the mind from the bondage of habit and customs so we don't have to do things the same old way every time. We can think in new directions. To produce people who can function with sensitivity and alertness as citizens of the whole world. That's a really nice kind of summarizing statement. Beyond the education for citizenship theme, there are several other aspects that have been very prominent in liberal education over the centuries. Um, one of those is breadth. So you might have heard the, the term the seven liberal arts. Again, this came from the Romans. And they studied as their, as their education for citizenship seven subjects. And it's really interesting to see what they are. Four of them were the kind of content things. Arithmetic and geometry, that's basically math now, and astronomy. So they had science in there. They had music and language and rhetoric and persuasion. Those are art subjects. They had grammar and logic. Logic was used to make arguments and convince people, right? So you can see those threads coming together. At the current time, liberal arts has come to mean something else. It generally refers to fine arts and humanities subjects history, philosophy, and so on. The humanities involve the study of what makes us human. Our model at the U of L is actually broader when we talk about liberal education because it still encompasses the sciences as well as the humanities. So we have a, an emphasis on science, social science, fine arts, and humanities. I want to trace some of the history of liberal education from those roots of breadth and citizenship. And I'm going to very grossly oversimplify about 500 years worth of history here. So if there are any historians in the audience, please forgive me. Um, the, in the Renaissance, Western Europe basically rediscovered all the works of the ancient Greeks and Romans. And this brought about a renaissance, a rebirth, 
of that um, approach to education and to knowledge. That set off the scientific revolution, which led to the valuing of evidence and empirical reasoning and the scientific method. And that produced such a flourishing that eventually it expanded into other areas as well. So we have a century, the 1700s, that are variously referred to as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. The Enlightenment's a nice name because it refers back to Plato, Plato's allegory of the cave, and a metaphor that light equals knowledge. Darkness is ignorance and light is knowledge. And you might know the, the motto of the University of Lethbridge, Fiat Lux, is literally, let there be light, let there be knowledge. This is also called the Age of Reason, and it grew out of that huge growth of, of logic and science and evidence, and people started trying to extend that not only to scientific things, but to the study of people, and that's when the social sciences were born. Right? We could uh, use those same methods to study human beings individually and in groups and in societies. So part of the point of all of this is there's a very strong thread of using logic and science and evidence, and that has culminated in what we often refer to today as critical thinking. And that's a very important part of liberal education as well. I mentioned that the U of L started out as a liberal education institution, and over 50 years, we kind of stopped talking about it for a while. I think we took for granted that everybody knew what it meant and appreciated what it meant. And our provost started a process back in about six years ago now to revitalize our approach and to start communicating better with our students, our faculty, our staff, our community, our government about the values of this kind of education. And that led to the formation of the School of Liberal Education in 2017. And I was hired shortly after as the first dean. And we put together a model of what we want our liberal education to give students. And we talk about these four pillars or strands. Uh, again, breadth, going back to the Romans, breadth of subjects and viewpoints, integration of knowledge across disciplines. It's not enough to know, you know everything about one narrow area. We want people to be able to talk to each other across disciplines and share knowledge critical thinking, that putting together of reasoned arguments. And what ties all that together is, is still that, that essential theme from the beginning of education for citizenship. So that's the model that we're using. There are two points that I would like to make about this. Um, one is that, as I've explained it, liberal education very much grew out of a Western tradition tracing back to Plato and Aristotle. And one of the ways that, that times have changed in the 21st century is our classes, our students, in fact, our whole country is a lot more diverse. And so liberal education has been expanding beyond this kind of Western canon, the Western worldview, to encourage students to look at other ways of knowing, indigenous ways of knowing, um, to look at other cultures, other languages, other experiences of the world. 
The second point I want to make is that to me, this vision of liberal education is really a vision of university education at its best. Universities, especially in professional programs, do a lot of training in specific um, outcomes, jobs, occupations. But part of what makes university education so valuable is exactly the kinds of things that I've been talking about. So um, I'll expand on that a little bit more as we go along as well. So I hope I've convinced you all of this is a very noble vision, but there's always a but. And you can probably predict what the big but is here. Money, always. Who's going to pay for this? Right? That's one of the pressing questions in our current economy in this province and elsewhere. So who pays for universities? And so the next little bit is a discussion that I actually had in my first year liberal education class with my students. Who pays and why? And what are the pros and cons of different models? So there are a number of models out there around the world and we can go away and collect data and statistics about costs and participation rates and payment rates around the world to look at. Basically, they range from two extremes, um, where the state, the government pays for everything, and at the other end, the, the state pays for nothing and the student pays for everything. Traditionally, in Alberta, we have been um, along the middle towards one end of this continuum. So historically, in Alberta, uh, what students pay into the university in tuition fees is about 30% of the budget of the university, of the operating budget to run the university for a year. So 30% comes from students. 60 to 65% has come from the government. And then there's a small amount that comes from various other places, right? So we're a little further towards the state pays all end of things, but not entirely there. Um, and different models are used in many European countries, those ones that get deri uh, derided these days as being very socialist. A lot of countries in Europe, the state pays for everything, which means students are not charged tuition fees. In fact, their fees are funded for them and they're often given a living allowance um, to go to university and the government pays for everything. Pros and cons, some people worry that if everything's free, students will just party and be lazy and there's probably an element of that. Um, if the government is paying for all of the education system, then your taxes are gonna be higher, right? So that's the flip side of this. The government gets their money from us, collectively, from the taxpayers. The American model, traditionally, has been much more towards the other end of this spectrum, that the uh, tuition fees are generally much higher there than they are in Canada, and the government subsidizes relatively little of the education. So lots of models, lots of different countries doing things in different ways, this is a good exercise for students um, to get them to think about a comparative analysis. The way we do things is not the only way to do things. We can go away and look up and, and analyze this. 
I often ask my students in class then, so why should I, a middle-aged, middle-income earner, pay for you guys to go to school? And that stumps them for a minute. Um, in our Albertan system, right, my taxes are sending my students to school. And they usually give me what I call circle of life arguments. So they point out, well, somebody paid for you to go to university, so now it's your turn. Good point. Um, they point out, well, it is important for me to have doctors and nurses and engineers and maybe teachers for a good quality of life. And, you know, as I age, doctors and nurses may loom larger in my future, so that's an important thing. And the third one is really the clincher. They point out, well, in a few years, we're going to be paying your pension. And yes, good point. So, so they get it, right? It's, it's a kind of cycle. All right. Um, I want to mention two specific current event examples that have to do with these models of payment. Um, I've mentioned that in the US, um, typically the state subsidizes very little and the tuition fees are much higher. But if you've been following the um, US Democratic primary, you'll know that there's been a lot of discussion among the Democrats about exactly this question, right? And some people, Warren and Sanders, have basically said, make post-secondary institution free for all. Well, free doesn't really mean free because somebody's paying. It means free for students and the government should cover the entire cost. They get labeled as socialists, if not worse, by some people. Um, there are issues of access here and uh, an American historian named Sessions has pointed out very succinctly, universality, um, so free access to students, equals upward redistribution. So questions of how much the government versus the individual pays has a big impact on social mobility in different countries, right? And so if higher education is free for everyone, there often is more upward movement of students who come from more disadvantaged families. Um, Pete Buttigieg, who apparently is winning in Iowa, um, he has a different view than Warren and Sanders. He doesn't want it completely subsidized. He says, Americans who have a college degree earn more than Americans who don't. So as a progressive, I have a hard time getting my head around the idea of a majority who earn less because they didn't go to college or university, subsidizing a minority who earn more because they do. So that's referring to participation rates. If only 20%, say, of the population goes to university, then is the other 80% going to be subsidizing those? So he doesn't want to make it totally subsidized. I think his basic argument is, if you're rich enough to go to university, pay for it yourself, but maybe let's subsidize those students who come from backgrounds that won't otherwise allow them to. So he's advocating for a kind of middle ground again. An American example, and of course the Canadian example right here at home, are the changes that our current government is uh, implementing in Alberta post-secondary education. So uh, the last few years tuition fees have been capped. The government is now raising those. They're probably going to go up at most places 7% a year for the next three years. 
So students will be paying a higher proportion and the government will be lowering the percentage that it pays. And as we've seen, there are pros and cons of this. Underlying this discussion really is two kind of competing views about the role of education, of higher education in our society. And I wanna talk a little bit about that. So many people argue that in the last 50 years, we've had a kind of neoliberal commodification of higher education. And what that means is it's no longer a kind of thing where the elite sent their children to live in the ivory tower for a few years and then come out and lead society. It's much more job focus specific. Um, this view often sees education as a product, a personal consumer choice, a personal investment. So there's a human capital theory. Going to university is investing in your future. You're developing your own personal capital that will get you a job. You're the one who's gonna get the increased salary for the rest of your life. You're the one who benefits, you should pay. So in this view, education is a personal good and we should have less subsidization. And if you're rich and your or your parents are rich, you're fine. If not, borrow the money, think of it as a mortgage in your future, an investment, borrow the money, do well, you'll be able to pay it back. On the other extreme from that, and again, this is a continuum, um, is higher education a societal good? And so the liberal education point of view would argue having an educated population benefits all of us, not just the people who became doctors and lawyers and dentists and got good jobs, but all of us because it produces thinkers and leaders and caring and engaged citizens in our society. And if we value that, perhaps we should be willing to subsidize at least some of it. So Sessions, again, has really summed this up well. Is higher education a commodity to be purchased by individuals, or is it a universal public good provided by the state? And once again, pros and cons of each argument, and maybe we'll land somewhere in the middle. I've been talking primarily here about higher education, universities specifically, but a lot of the same ideas apply to K-12 education, so I wanted to mention a few things there. Um, K-12 education is completely subsidized by our society, right? We agreed as a country that everybody ought to be able to go to school till grade 12, because that's what it takes to earn a decent middle-class kind of income in life in our country and because we want everyone to have equal access. And that's been a prevailing view, but you know, that's also under flux. This is a tweet that I saw in two weeks ago and I didn't write down who wrote it, but it was in the midst of one of those political firestorms about the K-12 system. Parents are the customers Students are the product, teachers are the vendors. That's commodification right there, right? And these are the kinds of things, so this is one extreme view of education as a commodity. 
I want to touch a little bit at the end on another kind of subtlety about this. When we start thinking of higher education as, as a commodity, as a product, we also tend to focus on certain subjects and majors as being more worthwhile. And so it's clear if you do a degree in education or medicine or accounting or, or um, engineering, it's clear what you're going to do and how you're going to contribute to society. Does the world really need more history majors and more tuba players and to pick a few random examples? Um, what things are worthwhile? And so I mentioned earlier the, the um, liberal arts. What about social science and humanities and arts majors? They don't always have a direct clear career path, right? It's not clear what they're going to do with their degree, but they do have broad-based skills as thinkers and learners. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence out there that over the course of a career, students in these areas and with a liberal education actually have a median return on investment 40 years after graduation, approaching a million dollars. They have a slower start in the, in the job world, but within 10 years, they've caught up to those engineers, and in 40 years, often they've earned more than, say, engineering or very practical job-based graduates. So there's a lot of evidence out there. Um, I don't have time to go into much of it. Um, another issue is the whole change in the job market. So a uh, uh, CIO at an analytics firm in the US said about 70% of liberal arts graduates do something completely different when they go from their first job to their second. That's true actually in many areas these days that people move, thank you, move careers very quickly and they don't stay in one job. The jobs that we can train you to do for life are often routine enough that those are the ones that are going to disappear because robots are doing them. You're going to have to be able to change, right? Our U of L alumni have told us it's your, your degree that gets you your first job, but your liberal education gets you your second and third job in your career. And that's a good endorsement. People talk a lot about 21st century skills, creativity and innovation, critical thinking and problem solving, communication and collaboration skills. The skills that employers are looking for these days are not specific content that you memorize this biology book. They want to know that you can think and that you can communicate, you can analyze and organize and convey information that you're literate statistically, um, technologically, that you can think and solve problems. And again, there's a whole bunch of studies that I will skip over a little bit. Um, lots of evidence if you want to see any data on this. A really important factor is the job market is changing. Past jobs are disappearing. Routine jobs are being automated. Jobs of the future mostly don't exist yet. So what we're really looking for is that you know how to think. And this is a quote from a January article in Inside Higher Education 
from um, a managing director of a global investment uh, company, BlackRock, who told a group of university presidents that they want people who can operate outside of silos, that's breadth, speak to many different types of people, integration and breadth, avoid sameness and familiarity. It doesn't matter what kind of degree you have, you will be moving in the job market. You have to be adaptable. And this is what this CIO said that I think captures a lot of this. In an economy that changes rapidly, the next big skill will be learning itself. And really, that's what university education is. That's what liberal education is. Your degree is a four-year extended guided practicum in thinking and learning. Students get to choose their preference for what they want to think and learn about, but essentially they're learning how to learn, how to think, how to apply those skills across different venues. Right? Your degree is a piece of paper, and some students might argue, you know, in the current job market, it's almost useless. It's not. It's a signal that you have practiced hard thinking and learning for four years, and you've gotten good at it. And really, that means a lot, right? Both for jobs and for society. We have a speaker series in the School of Liberal Education, and we call it the Libad Living Room. And that metaphor goes back to a British thinker called Michael Oakeshott. His metaphor was edu for education was it's an ongoing conversation. And I really like that. So here's what he says. As civilized human beings, we are the inheritors of a conversation extended and made more articulate in the course of centuries. Education, properly speaking, is an initiation into the skill and partnership of this conversation. And it's the ability to participate which makes us human. So I've argued for, yes, you'll get good job skills, but I also go back to the liberal education roots of this is what our society needs. We need people who participate in the conversation of being human. And it's not two separate skill sets. They are very closely interwoven. So I want to finish by acknowledging and honoring the work of SACPA, because that's what you folks do. You are extending to the Lethbridge and Southern Alberta community weekly this invitation to participate in the ongoing conversation about our world, our society, what we think is good, what we think isn't working, and how to fix it. And that's really important to democracy and society. So keep up the good work. Thank you.